So tonight we're just looking at just the two verses that I just read. And this is Exodus 15, 20, and 21. And the first thing that we should note is that there is actually nothing substantially new added by this song. There's no new substance. It's essentially a repetition of the first line of Moses' song in Exodus 15 and verse 1. Listen to 15.1. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And now listen to verse 21, the song that Miriam sings. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So there's nothing theologically new or nothing being developed in Miriam's song that hasn't already been said and developed in Moses' song. So the inclusion of these two verses seems to be in order to highlight Miriam's identity and function as a prophetess in Israel, and it is to highlight the participation of women in this celebration that the Israelites have come across the Red Sea. This is one, just one more piece of evidence that, that God values women. These days it's popular to criticize orthodox, historic Christianity on the grounds that it devalues women. Of course, within the church as well as outside the church, let's admit that there have been instances of misogyny or anti, an anti-woman kind of mentality or practice. But it's besides the point that we can find instances of misogyny in the uh, history of the Christian church. Because you can find instances of misogyny outside of the Christian church as well. And so um, the very fact that you can find instances of misogyny in the Christian church doesn't actually prove that Christianity itself is misogynistic. Just because in some cases X and Y appear together, it doesn't mean that X has led to Y. As in, some Christian men have been sexist, therefore Christianity is sexist. X, being Christianity at times in history, may have coincided with misogyny. But so has non-Christianity. And so, what are we to argue then? Both Christianity and non-Christianity alike lead to misogyny? Obviously, you can see when you think of it like that, that the form of that argument isn't valid. To prove that Christianity leads to misogyny, one would have to show that the Bible teaches the goodness or the desirability of misogynism or misogyny. And that certainly is not the case. From the very first chapter of the Bible, we read about the fundamental inherent equality of men and women. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, we read that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Man here stands for mankind and not men alone. And so the teaching is that God created men and women in his image. And in case there was any doubt that man stands for mankind, men and women together, Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes that explicit. 
when he says male and female, he created them. He wants us clearly to understand that the import of what he's saying is that both men and women have been created in the image of God. So the Bible teaches the inherent equality of women and men from page 1. We go on from there and we observe at the appearance at many key moments of the Bible uh, the important role that women play. Let's review a few of these together. We're going to come to Joshua eventually. I'm not sure if God's providence had our sermon series, how long exactly that's going to be, but eventually we'll come to Joshua. And in Joshua chapter 2, we have the famous story where Rahab hides the spies. And so these two spies go to Jericho and they go into the house of a prostitute named Rahab and people find out that she's there or that they're there and they go and ask her but she hides them and keeps them safe and she says, look, when you eventually conquer Jericho, please spare me and my family. So she exercises faith in Yahweh and that he is indeed going to give Jericho into the hands of the Israelites. And he asked, she asked that she might take shelter under the mercy of Yahweh. And so the Lord receives her. This prostitute, who is also a Gentile, the Lord receives her. The Lord doesn't devalue her by virtue of her gender, nor does he devalue her by virtue of her place in society, but he accepts her and receives her as a daughter, this Gentile prostitute. We think also of Ruth. She has a whole book of the Bible devoted to her. She was a Moabitess who again came to take shelter under the wings of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And God welcomes her. And in fact, she ends up marrying one of the ancestors of King David. And then there's Abigail. 1 Samuel 25, David is on his way to kill a guy named Nabal, who has stubbornly and foolishly refused to care for David and his men. And Abigail, David's, or pardon me, Nabal's wife, comes out to entreat David not to do this thing. And we read this in verses 32 to 34. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left in Nabal so much as one male. And what's interesting here is that David, a man, is confronted by a woman, David the king is confronted by a woman and corrected by her. And the scripture presents her as being right and him as being wrong. And so this is an instance where David recognizes her discretion and the scripture sets up that she has something meaningful to offer even to the king of Israel. Then there's uh, another lesser known story in 2 Samuel chapter 20 where a guy named Sheba rebels against David and he goes and hides in a city called Abel. And we read this in verses 16 to 22. Um, well, all the um, David's men 
come and they lay siege to Abel. So they've surrounded the city. That's the context, to get Sheba. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, that was the commander of the army, Come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. And she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. And she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So they, so he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. So again, here we have a wise woman delivering a whole city. She is uh, given audience with the commander of the army, which shows at least a willingness. Uh, there's a culture in David's army that they would at least be willing to listen to a woman and hear her out. And she comes with wise words. And she says something that is reasonable and persuasive, and the matter is settled. Twice she's called wise in that passage. Then there's Esther, who has another book of the Bible named for her. Now, we have books of the Bible named for men, right? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Matthew, Mark, Luke. But those books are actually not about those people, you know? There's, a, there's one, I guess, Job. That's about Job. Right? But we have Ruth and Esther. And here's Esther, who is a, a Jewish woman, who again becomes the deliverer of God's people. Her uncle Mordecai says, look, go and treat the king because God's people are going to be exterminated. And she's hesitant. But Mordecai encourages her and empowers her. And says, look, go, like you're in a special position. Right? You have an audience, a potential audience with the king that I don't have, that none of us have. Perhaps the Lord has raised you up for such a time as this. And the implication actually is the Lord has raised her up for such a time as this. And so what that shows us is that the Lord in His providence has seen fit to use women in His plan. To use women in the accomplishment of His purposes and in in even the rescue of His people. Then we see in the resurrection account in Luke 23.55 to 24.12 the following... Luke twenty three fifty five. The women who had come with him from Galilee, that is Jesus, this is after Jesus was crucified, followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week at early dawn they, that is the women, went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. 
While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven, and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. By God's appointment, the first people who were witnesses to the resurrection were women. That wasn't a coincidence. It's not like Jesus rose and was hoping Peter had been there. But unfortunately, it was these women. Obviously, it was by God's appointment that these women were the the witnesses to the resurrection. And they were commissioned to go and tell the others. They go to the apostles, okay? And the apostles actually take a pretty misogynistic approach in this case, don't they? And it seemed to them an idle tale. So they basically don't take these women seriously, which is pretty disrespectful. But what we see in this passage is that the apostles are actually corrected. As they do the research and look at the facts, what do we find? The apostles were wrong and the women were right. And so God actually vindicates the testimony of the women over against the apostles in this matter. This is just a sampling. I'm sure I could produce more if I uh, had studied more thoroughly and tried to do this exhaustively. But I just tried to name. I just tried to pick a few that came to my mind very immediately as I was preparing this message. But you can see the scripture speaks very well of women. They have a meaningful role to play in the unfolding of redemption of God's purposes and plan. They are wise. They are truthful. They are reliable etc., etc. The Bible indicates that women should be listened to and should be engaged with, not dismissed, as the apostles try to do here in Luke 24. And so we see, far from disparaging the equality of women and the dignity and the worth of women, the Bible actually speaks very highly, and in fact in countercultural ways, about the dignity and worth of women. Because in many of the cultures in which these women lived and existed, the way the Bible talks about them would have been the countercultural exception. The Bible actually speaks in a higher way of them than the surrounding culture would have. And we see the same thing back in Exodus 15. God seems to want to point out that the women were participating in this celebration. As the Israelites cross the Red Sea, Moses leads in a song, and then Miriam, the prophetess, leads in a song. And the women are joyfully celebrating with tambourines and with dancing. And we're not, there's nothing here condemning this, there's nothing here casting aspersions on this. The narrator is not sort of looking out the side of his eye disparagingly at these women, there's nothing like that. This seems to be a celebration, it's just another detail given 
about the jubilation of the Israelites and their exaltation in the God of their salvation. And the women are participating fully in this. Since there's nothing new being added by the words of the song, it seems to be that the identity of the celebrants is the primary thing that we are to glean from Exodus 15, 20, and 21. It is clear from the scripture that women are inherently equal to men. As the New Testament teaches, where women are heirs with men of the grace of life. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Look, the Father did not elect men alone. The Lord Jesus Christ did not die for men alone. The Holy Spirit does not regenerate and indwell men alone. Rather, women are beloved of the Father, just as men are. Women are redeemed by Christ, just as men are. Women are regenerated and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, just as men are. And this is what we are to understand in the fact that the women came through the Red Sea together with the men. And the women celebrated and sang, The Lord is my strength and my song. The Lord is my salvation. He has triumphed gloriously. He has thrown our enemies into the sea. They were saved alongside the men. And they had every right to rejoice and to celebrate in the God of their salvation as the men of Israel did. God values women. We see that here in Exodus 15, 20, and 21. As the Holy Spirit inspires Moses to record the celebration of the women specifically. So that the sisters throughout the ages may know that they are seen and acknowledged by God. And welcomed by God to participate fully in the experience of salvation and that they belong fully to the family of God. Let all the sisters know this based on the fact that Miriam, the prophetess, and the other women join in this jubilation, having been rescued by God and having crossed the Red Sea. God values women. That being said, women have distinctive creation purposes and function because of inherent distinctiveness from men. Christians get into trouble for saying, essentially, boys and girls are different. Now, the world seems to have this view that if you're different, you're not equal. That one must be better than the other. And so if you're different, you're not equal. And if you want to be equal, well, then you can't be different. This seems to be a view that many people take. But biblical teaching is just different but equal. There's no need to say that one is better than the other. Men are better than women or women are better than men. Just because we say that men and women are different. That's a non-secretary. It doesn't follow. Women and men are different. And 1 Timothy 2, 12-14 indicates that leadership and authority most certainly in the church, it's disputed whether it's a wider principle or not, but most certainly in the church, these things are reserved for men. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach 
or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. The scripture teaches that women are not to be leaders and teachers of men in the church. And that God created men for that purpose, and God has created women for other purposes. Now some would say, well, this is contextual, this was just the church that uh, Timothy was pastoring in for whatever other reasons, this only applied to them. Well, Paul roots it in creation, doesn't he? He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For, now he's going to give a reason, isn't he? For, Adam was formed first, then Eve. In other words, there is an order in creation, and we're not exegeting First Timothy 2, so I'm not going to do this thoroughly, but my only point is that he references creation and God's design in creation, which is why in Timothy's church, and then by implication in all churches, men are to be the ones teaching and exercising authority over the mixed multitude of men and women together. Paul also may root this injunction in inherent susceptibilities. Hear me out on this one. As men have deficiencies and incompleteness, are it, amen? Men have deficiencies and incompleteness. Anytime, anytime that we say, you know, this apartment needs a woman's touch, okay, or anything like that, all we're saying, all we're saying is that the man himself is not a complete package, okay, that there are things that he brings to the table, but there are things that he doesn't bring to the table, okay, which shouldn't really be a shock to us, okay? It seems to me that this passage teaches that women have a deficiency and an incompleteness, which leaves them more susceptible to deception. Look, at, look again at the text. Paul says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So Paul's argument is, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. Therefore, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. You see what Paul's doing there? To me, that seems to indicate that, that, in general, women have a susceptibility to being deceived that men don't have. Now, that's not a popular thing to say, obviously. There's debate, there's debate about that, even within conservative circles or reform circles, so I don't mean to advocate that this is the view. But to me, that's what this passage seems to be saying. But let's pause there and just think about that. Do people get their dignity and worth from the gifts and abilities that they have. Now, if we were to say that men have certain gifts and abilities that women don't have, therefore they are of more worth, of more value, inherently better, that would be wrong, wouldn't it? But isn't that the assumption that people are making when they hear somebody like me say that just as women have gifts and abilities that men don't have, men also have gifts and abilities that women don't have. When they hear someone like me say that, 
that men can do certain things and have gifts and abilities and proclivities that women don't have and perhaps are less susceptible to certain things. When they hear me say that, they automatically infer, ah, then you're saying that women are inferior. So they're actually assuming that I think that if women don't have the exact same gifts and abilities as men, then they're lesser. Which means that they think only male gifts and abilities create dignity and worth and equality in God's eyes. Which means they actually think that men and men's gifts and men's abilities are better than women's gifts and abilities. Which is actually then backwards, isn't it? So who is it that is actually denigrating women? I'm saying men and women are different. Women are better at some things than men. I fully acknowledge that. Men are better at some things than women. God has given certain proclivities to women, certain proclivities to men. Men have certain susceptibilities. Women have other susceptibilities. Sometimes a thing needs a woman's touch. Sometimes a thing needs a man's touch. Right? Like, we're good at opening jars and stuff. Right? Sometimes something needs a woman's touch. Sometimes something needs a man's touch. But listen, if we can just get over this thing where we're different, and, like, I can beat my wife in an arm wrestle, but there are things that she can do better than me. Right? There are, there are things that men are better at and things that women are better at, generally speaking. Now, obviously, we can find exceptions to all these things, and this is where the argument goes, and it devolves into these things. Well, I know a woman who can do this better than most men. Well, sure. And I know men that can do this better than most women. Well, sure. Of course, there, there are outliers and so on and so forth, but there are general patterns. There are, there are women that could lift a lot more weight than me in a gym, you know, who could beat me in an arm wrestling. Right? There are women who I would pass a jar to and ask her to open it. Right? But that doesn't, mean, that doesn't mean that generally women are physically stronger than men, and so on and so forth. So when the Bible does teach distinctiveness between men and women, even when it says, look, men are more suited for some things than others, or pardon me, than women are. And when it says women are suited better for some things than men are, the Bible is not necessarily being misogynistic. We've already seen that God values women, that God speaks very highly of women, that God includes women as full fellow heirs together with men of the grace of life, that He includes them in His unfolding plan of redemption, that He honors them, that He vindicates them, that He uses them to correct kings like David and apostles like Peter. The Bible speaks very highly of women, but it also does say, look, they're different. Men are different from women, women are different from men, and there are certain things that each has been designated to do. So now, coming back to Exodus 15, okay? So women are not to teach or to exercise authority over a man, because men and women are different. Wait, wait, wait! But Miriam was a prophetess. It says that in Exodus 15. And in Acts chapter 21 and verse 9, Philip had four daughters who prophesied. What do you say to that, Pastor John? Right? This is, this is where the argument goes next, right? Which is why I went to 1 Timothy 
2. Because we're still really anchored in Exodus 15, aren't we? So the scripture seems to be highlighting and celebrating the fact that women are celebrating the crossing over of the Red Sea. And it highlights Miriam's identity as a prophetess. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand. And all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Well, if women are not to teach or have authority over a man, then what about Miriam who prophesied? The answer to this is just found in just understanding what prophecy is. And for that we turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. And verse 21, where it says this, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now that word carried along in the New Testament, I did an exhaustive study of it one time. It's like the way that boats get carried along by winds that the sailors can't overcome. It's the way that the paralytic gets carried along by his friends when they're bringing him to Jesus. What 2 Peter chapter 1, and again, just as I didn't fully exegete 1 Timothy 2, neither am I going to fully exegete 2 Peter chapter 1. But what 2 Peter chapter 1 teaches us is that there is no such thing as fallible prophecy. When people prophesy, they're not producing their prophecy by their own will. Rather, they're speaking from God as they are carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so what we see in 2 Peter chapter 1 is that prophecy is actually speaking the very words of God. Yes, of course, we know people speak in their own manner. It's not as if the Lord sort of, um, you know, over... uh, Like, what am I trying to say? Like remote control or something. Where the Lord just starts speaking in a voice and tone and in a vocabulary distinct from the speaker. We know that people speak in their own style, with their own diction and their own cadence and their own grammar, which is why Isaiah sounds different from Mark and why Mark sounds different from Romans and all this kind of stuff. We understand that. But every jot and tittle, as the King James Version puts it, every iota is exactly what God would have it to be. That's how Jesus understands the Old Testament which was produced not by the will of man, but by men speaking from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We see that in Second Peter chapter 1. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So in other words, the Old Testament scriptures are absolutely sure, absolutely certain. Everything is exactly as it ought to be because the very nature of prophecy is that it's not coming from someone's own interpretation. It's not coming from the will of man. It's coming from people speaking as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's exactly what God would have it to be. They are speaking the very words of God. Therefore, pay attention to prophecy to the scriptures, to the prophets at that time still operative in the church. 
listen to prophecy because it's absolutely sure, absolutely certain. This is the nature of prophecy. So when we come back to Exodus 15 or when we go to Acts chapter 21 and we see women prophesying, what they are doing is speaking the very words of God. Now, I would never get sent to deliver a message from the Prime Minister to another nation. Because I'm not, I mean, I'm not even that, in that field of work. That was so that would never happen. But let's use our imaginations and pretend that it happened. And I'm delegated to go to another country and I, I have a message to bring on behalf of Prime Minister Miyamadi. And she has written it down on a piece of paper and I'm to go into the person's presence and read it. Now, if I read it, who's the authority? Me or our Prime Minister? The Prime Minister. All I'm doing is delivering her words. Right? So what we see when, when women prophesy, they're not actually taking an authoritative position. They are delivering a message that comes on God's own authority. And so what we see is that the act of preaching, like what I'm doing now, is actually more authoritative in terms of its exercise than the act of prophesying. Because there is a sense in which I'm saying, listen to me. Now, obviously, you know, you, I think you guys understand what I mean by that. But maybe if there's someone online watching that doesn't know, look, I'm not infallible. I want you to actually go to the Bible and see if what I'm telling you is true or not. I want you to, crit to criticize and think through what I'm saying and raise objections and questions. Join us on Wednesday night online on Zoom and community group and you can ask about anything like I want that, right? So I'm not, I'm not saying don't listen to anyone else, only listen to me, don't think critically. I'm not saying that. But there is a sense in which I'm asking you to trust my study, my research. There's a sense in which I'm trying to persuade you. There's a sense in which I'm acting as one whom God has set an authority over the congregation to lead you, to teach you, to confront you, to rebuke you, to guide you. And so there is actually authority vested in me and in the work that I'm doing right now, which is preaching. If I were to stand up and simply read the Bible without commenting on it, whose authority would I be exercising? God's. Exactly. So what we see in the Scriptures is that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, Exodus 15, Acts 21, for example, just to give two examples, we see women prophesying, which again indicates that we see God including women in meaningful ways in the unfolding of redemption. God's goal is not to sideline women, but as in Exodus 15, the Holy Spirit comes powerfully upon Miriam and God puts words in her mouth that she might sing and that she might lead the people, right, the women of the people, but that she might lead the people and influence them towards Him. So God uses Miriam in a powerful way by causing her to prophesy. And God used the four daughters of Philip in Acts 21 in the same way. Now, again, we're not going to go into it tonight. It's a sermon for another day. But here at Covenant Reformed Baptist Church, we believe that nobody today is speaking the very words of God. 
We believe that the Bible is finished, it's complete, the canon is closed, is the way people typically say it, and so we believe that prophecy has ceased. Does that mean that the Holy Spirit's not working anymore? Of course not. We believe that the Holy Spirit is working, and working powerfully. We believe that no one can be saved apart from the Holy Spirit's work. We believe that uh, we actually need the Holy Spirit more then the Charismatics think we need the Holy Spirit to come to Christ. Because they think you can sit there and do it of your own free will. And we say, no, no. Unless the Holy Spirit gives you the new birth, unless He moves more powerfully upon you than you think He has to, you aren't going to believe. So we're more Charismatic than the Charismatics. But we believe that nobody is going around today speaking the very words of God. Which is just another way of saying we believe that prophecy has ceased. So what would be the equivalent of prophesying in the church today? Reading the Bible. It's a public reading of Scripture. And so there is debate about this, even within conservative circles within the Reformed Church, whether women should be permitted to read the Scriptures in a public worship service or not. And I think, I think the answer is yes. I think that we ought not to have women preach, because that would be asking them to exercise authority and over a congregation and to teach men. I believe that um, uh, when I designate someone to pray publicly on behalf of the church, I'm asking them to exercise leadership over the church. And I think a couple of times I've subconsciously slipped, but I generally actually try to ask men to do that in keeping with this principle of male leadership in the church. I'm a wholehearted complementarian, in case you haven't figured that out by this juncture in the sermon. But I also think that it's important to recognize and to affirm the uh, fundamental equality of women and men in the church, and to mobilize and to empower women to do as much as is within the purview of what God has created them for, designed them for, and, and allows as permissible within the scriptures. And I think that that includes the public reading of Scripture also. So that's what it means when it says that Miriam was a prophetess. So what we've seen here tonight is really two points. That God values women, and that nevertheless, God has created men and women differently, and distinct from one another. And that's okay. Men are better at some things, and women are better at some things. And to say so much, and to acknowledge so much, that men have certain susceptibilities, that women have certain susceptibilities, is not to render one inferior or one superior. If we believe that superior gifts and abilities, whether among men or women, created more value and more worth and more dignity in that person, we'd be living in a Darwinian society, wouldn't we? It'd be survival of the fittest. And the smartest, most intellectually, phys physically healthy among us would be the most valuable among us. And those who are less physically healthy, those less intellectually gifted, perhaps those smaller and weaker, perhaps the mentally ill, we would say they would be less worthwhile. And what a horrible thought that is. So to recognize that, that differing gifts and abilities, whether in this area or that, saying that men have susceptibilities that women don't have, that women have susceptibilities that men don't have, that God created men for certain things, women for other things, and that there's difference and variation 
and degree in these things. This doesn't render us unequal whatsoever. And that's an important point to draw out. But God values women. We are all co-heirs of the same grace of life. We are saved by the same Lord Jesus Christ who came to give his life as a ransom for many. He died on behalf of men and women alike. He died on behalf of young boys and girls. He died on behalf of the mentally ill with less uh, gifts and abilities in some way than others. He died on behalf of the physically disabled with less gifts and abilities than others. He died on behalf of those with gargantuan intellects and he died on behalf of those uh, with less uh, powers of intellect. He died on behalf of all kinds of different people with all differing and varied gifts and abilities in the uniqueness that he created us all in. And he died for us, both men and women alike. We read and we believe the same Bible. We appropriate the same promises and we are heirs of the same great salvation. Just as Miriam the prophetess and the women of Israel were heirs of the same great salvation as the rest of the Israelites when they all together passed through the Red Sea. And so in the words of Psalm 148, young men and maidens together, old, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord. Or in the versified form that we're about to sing, boys and girls, young men and women, older ones and children small. Let us all proverbially take up tambourines and dance and celebrate the God of our salvation. Psalm 148, let's sing it in response to the tune of Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And for the record, I actually don't believe that tambourines and dance are out of bounds. <laughs> Just to clarify that joke. Psalm 148, uh, come now long ex- to the tune of Come Now Long Expected Jesus. <laughs> 